Hello, welcome to a new feature of the Tolkien Professor podcast series, the Tolkien Chats. As I mentioned at the end of my last lecture, I have little in the way of free time while classes are in session. However, I do want to keep the conversation going, and even if I don't have time to write many lectures just now, I'd still like to answer some of your questions and address some other interesting topics. Today, therefore, I am experimenting with a new kind of content. Over the course of the semester, I'm going to be sitting down to have friendly conversations with some of my former students, my colleagues, or my current students, either on subjects that they are particularly interested in, or about issues that you guys have raised by email or in the discussion forum. These conversations I will record and post for you. They'll be a little less focused and a little less polished than my lectures, of course, but I hope that you'll enjoy them. Today's chat is with Ben Kozlowski, a former student of mine at Washington College. Ben graduated in 2008 as a philosophy major with a passion for literature. Ben is one of the most highly regarded philosophy majors to graduate from Washington College in many years, and I was lucky enough to have him in several of my English classes while he was here. Ben audited my Tolkien course his senior year, and since he was only auditing, he didn't write the big final paper for the course. He was visiting campus this past week, and he and I got to talking about Tolkien, and he told me the topic that he would have written his paper on had he been taking the course for credit. He said that he was interested in Tolkien's treatment of knowledge, in particular the knowledge of evil. I thought this sounded like a really interesting topic, so later on we sat down to discuss it. So, without further preamble, I'd like to introduce you to Ben Kozlowski. The question on the table is, is knowledge bad in Tolkien's world? Um, there are a lot of examples of people knowing things, of people not knowing things, of people learning things, and sometimes it seems that that knowledge has a pernicious effect on them. Sometimes right. it seems that it is necessary to have that knowledge. Rarely do you see the sort of academic interest where knowledge is just good for knowledge's sake. That doesn't exist in Tolkien's world. Bravery is a good thing. Uh, living is a good thing, and dying can very well be a good thing, but knowledge isn't necessarily good. Right. One uh, one clear example uh, that seems to kind of get at this, which is at least an interesting passage, um, in The Fellowship of the Ring, right when the Fellowship is preparing to leave and they're figuring out who the last two people should be and, 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 and Pippin and Mary want in, Pippin says, we don't want to be left behind, we want to go with Frodo. And Elrond responds, that is because you do not understand and cannot imagine what lies ahead. And Gandalf says, neither does Frodo, nor do any of us see clearly. It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go, but they would still wish to go or wish that they dared and be shamed and unhappy. I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather to their friendship than to great wisdom. Uh, And I think that there are two interesting things that we can see there. The first is that the ignorance of the hobbits appears, Gandalf is suggesting, is a good thing, that right. it would interfere with their courage. I mean, if, if, if they knew more, it would, it would hurt them in some ways. And the second thing is that, that last statement, that it would be better, better to trust to their friendship than to great wisdom. Right. That is, so being wise and knowing what is the wise thing to do will not always, I guess, right. lead you in the right, right. direction that, okay, this is wise, but... Um, Knowing that, let's do the other thing, because I think that would be better. Seems a bizarre kind of argument to yes. make. The other example that really comes to mind as far as uh, knowledge being pernicious is Saruman. Right. And right. throughout the books, it is always shown that Saruman is kept up in his tower. He is constantly researching evil. He is trying to understand the machinations of Sauron, and in doing so, corrupts himself. And ultimately, he is the one performing the most horrendous uh, experiments on man and orc and he 
addition to Sauron, is creating his own army and despoiling Middle-earth. And basically, he is just as evil when everything is said and done. Knowledge is not helping him as he sees it, but instead, it is totally corrupting him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You can see, I mean, you alluded earlier to there being very little discussion of even, and certainly even less glamorization of scholarship, you know, right. that is people just pursuing knowledge and gaining knowledge. Saruman is the only one that we see engaging in something that looks like scholarship, right. but his scholarship leads him to, to orc eugenics, you know, yes. I mean, and this is clearly, clearly a bad thing. But yeah, I mean, there's that passage where Gandalf says explicitly that, you know, it is dangerous to, to, to study too closely the devices of the enemy. I mean, if you, if you know too much about Sauron and you know too much about evil in the way that Saruman has come to know it, um, it, it will overcome you. Now, I mean, I don't think... I think it would be unfair to take that too far. I mean, it would be unfair right. to say, you know, like, well, Saruman, you know, he was a great guy and would have been a great guy, but he knew too much. And, you right. know, had he been, had he done less research, he'd have been a great, perfectly well-adjusted right. member of society because obviously, you know, he had some moral yes. flaws, you know, in advance. But Furthermore, you have Bilbo and you have Frodo at the end of the book right. both recording all of their adventures, and this is always a good thing. Anytime that you yeah. make these histories, anytime that you tell these stories, this is a very good thing. Um, yeah. So scholarship in that sense, in preservation sense, to Tolkien must be a wonderful thing indeed. Yeah, that's true. Even, in, of course, the, this... Is that, no, he doesn't use the word scholarship. He uses the word learning. Uh, in, mm-hmm. when he, he praises... Um, Bilbo's translations from the Elvish right. as a work of great learning, which is clearly, as you say, a great thing. Though, you know, that's interesting. The other thing it makes me think of is Frodo giving the Red Book to Sam yes. and how, you know, and Sam's job, he's going to be, of course, mayor forever and he's going to be the father of like 85 children. But <laughs> in addition to those things, he's going to uh, keep alive the memory of the things that were. You know, he, he's going to be the keeper of the lore and, and right. we have the Red Book of Westmarch passing on and, you know, through his family line as really a center, you know, and so their, their home uh, is going to become, their family home is going to become a center of learning. So in that sense, you can see yeah, Bilbo and uh, very unexpectedly Sam right. uh, you know, become, <laughs> you know, good scholars in that way. But, but you can clearly see a difference, right? I mean, yes. the, between preserving the memory of that which was, as, as Bilbo was doing from, with the first stage in his Elvish translations, and... Sam is doing with a third right. age through, through, through the Red Book. Which, it almost seems to me that there's almost a difference between scientific knowledge, right. uh, knowledge of the way that things work, knowledge of process, which is what Saruman is doing, trying to get under the skin of things, trying to figure out how magic is operating, yeah. and then histor- or history, yeah. uh, and I suppose even the humanities, the poetry, the, right. the lays that are passed down from time to time. Yeah. And when... Uh, when Gandalf and Elrond and Aragorn are all sitting at the Council of Elrond, they're all talking about the old times right. and specifically how evil has come into being before and how evil is even now doing this again. The experience from the past ages gives them insight into the present, and I believe that it is this knowledge of history that allows them to arm themselves against Sauron. So knowledge in that sense is also a very good thing. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's... I think that that's a really neat contrast. I mean, you think of the things that Gandalf isolates about Saruman as, as his pursuit of knowledge being bad. I and mean, of course, Saruman is the one who says, you know, knowledge, rule, order, right. or, you know, the things that he values. Um, but, you know, the line where Gandalf says, you know, he who breaks a thing to find, who, he who breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. Yes. How can you do scientific research without breaking stuff? I mean, like, how do you, how do you learn, you know, biology without dissection? You know, right, how do right. you, you know, so it's, 
That's hard. <laughs> but, but it does suggest that, yeah, that, that there is something about that kind of knowledge that is intrinsically dangerous. Yes. I, mean, I won't say bad, but dangerous. Yes. I think that you can see it fitting into a pattern that emerges in Tolkien's works that is science ultimately is about mastery. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I want to figure something out and know how it works, which will probably lead me to be the boss of it. You know, right. that is like, you know, scientific knowledge leads to industrialization, basically. Right. Right. And, you know, Tolkien hated industrialization, not yes. just because, you know, he thought it was ugly and disliked it, though that was true, but, um, but because of what it meant about, you know, uh, I mean, even the, the, the phrases that people did used to use more and still sometimes now about, you know, man achieving mastery over nature as if that's a good thing. You know, the scientific progress, you can measure it by, you know, how we have mastered nature. And Tolkien was deeply uncomfortable with that kind of idea. Um, So, and that's Saruman's kind of knowledge. That's what he does. Whereas, yeah, that that, that humanity's sort of knowledge is intrinsically humble. You know, it's not about mastery at all. It's about memory. It's about retaining... uh, the knowledge of the great things of the past and of other people and not, uh, and not increasing your own power, increasing your own status. But though this answers the question about Saruman, it really doesn't answer the question about the hobbits and right. why it is that it's a good thing that they don't know what is to come right. for them right. when they embark into the wilderness and head off to Mount Doom. Yeah, yeah. And that really does seem to suggest... Um, anyway, so we've already kind of made one distinction, which right. I think is interesting about sort of different kinds of knowledge or different arenas of knowledge, right. I guess I would say there. Um, but yeah, that does seem to be really just pointing to a fundamentally different kind of knowledge. It's yes. not one kind of book learning versus another kind of book learning. It's right. just a different kind of learning or knowledge entirely. I think this goes back to the schooling distinction, uh, right. where Sam at the very end of the Lord of the, uh, rather, of the Fellowship of the Ring, when, at the breaking of the Fellowship, when Sam says uh, Frodo would not be able to go on if he hadn't had a sort of schooling at this point in time. Right, uh, right. All the events of the Fellowship of the Ring, all the troubles that Frodo faces, ultimately empower him so he can separate from the rest of the group with just his servant and take the ring to Mount Doom. Um, so at the same time, we have knowledge as a bad thing when going into something experiential, going into something that's scary when in dealing with bravery, yeah. but at the same time it also empowers and makes right. one able to be brave. And right. Yeah, I mean it's, well, and clearly the fundamental theoretical distinction there is between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge, right. you know, and I, I think I always get um, frustrated by the fact that English it's like the only language I know that doesn't have two totally different and obviously discrete words right. for those two different kinds of knowledges. I mean, study a foreign language and you'll find yeah. that there are different words for knowledge. The no. French savoir meaning book knowledge, the French connaissance meaning yeah. Yeah. familiarity, I guess. Exactly. I mean, and it works, it works that way in almost every, you know, almost every romance language. I mean, most languages have it. You can even see it. Um, I was just teaching in my foundations of uh, Western literature class and doing the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When, uh, you know, when the Bible talks about knowledge in that sense, it's, it seems pretty clear. It's not talking about knowledge in the, in the, in the book learning sense. Right. It's not, Adam and Eve don't lack information about, you know, what is evil. And you see, Eve says to the serpent, you know, the serpent says, hey, eat the fruit. And Eve says, 
uh, no, I'm not supposed to do that. Eating the fruit would be evil. I mean, right. she, she knows that that would be wrong to right. do. That's the whole premise of the thing is that she recognizes that. So she has that information. Some things are evil and some things are good. I know what is evil and I know what is good and I know that I'm not supposed to do evil and I know I am supposed to do good. But what she lacks, of course, is any experience of evil. She's never done evil before, so she doesn't know both good and evil in that sense. She knows only good at that time. And then once they eat the fruit, they now know evil. And, uh, and they realize, you know, they, they now look down at their bodies and, and, and realize that they are naked. And, and again, I love that, you know, God comes down and says, who told you that you were naked? Right. right? And again, it's, it's not like they've gained information, right? Gosh, I just realized my body is bare. Yes. I mean, no, they always knew that their bodies were bare. But now they experience themselves. They experience their bodies. They experience their own awareness in a, in a totally different way. So basically, this, this race, you know, I think this distinction is a really important one, of course, in trying to figure out what's going on with knowledge. Um, in thinking about whether knowledge is a good thing or a bad thing, you know, that clearly in both cases that we've, that we've mentioned, the one right after the Council of Elrond when, when they're saying, you know, Pippin and Mary are, are bravely volunteering to go right. because of their ignorance. If they right. had knowledge, they wouldn't. And, and Sam saying what, it, what appears to be almost the opposite. Um, had Frodo not had that schooling, the experience that they have all had during their journey, um, he would be so afraid he'd throw the ring in the river and bolt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it really opens up the question then, how does knowledge, and I think specifically here, going back to the Saruman example, knowledge of evil. Right. How does knowledge of evil affect you? How does experiential knowledge of evil affect you? Saruman clearly, um, you know, he... he too much book learning about evil <laughs> yes, yes. was bad, apparently. The next question, I guess, then, is in dealing with Gildor. Uh, right. The hobbits find Gildor. Is it just uh, Frodo and Sam at that point? Uh, no, it's, it's, no, it's just Frodo, isn't no, it? Well, it's Frodo and Sam and Pippin, though it's just Frodo who has the conversation. with okay. Frodo, Sam, and Pippin are crossing the Shire uh, to meet Mary's already waiting right. for them out at the house. And at this point, up. Frodo's not totally resigned with Mary and Pippin and Sam sticking with him. He's yeah. just kind of, yeah. all right, you can follow me to the end of the Shire. Right. And he asks Gildor for advice, and Gildor responds, well, I'm not sure that's what you really want here. Advice is a dangerous thing. And ultimately advises him to bring everyone along who is willing to go and to take as many friends as he can. Um, and in the process of talking about this, he also mentions that Frodo, probably at one point in time, and he sort of prophesizes what is to come at the end of the return of the king, uh, one day Frodo will be more knowledgeable than Gildor himself right. about evil and about uh, the way of the world, I guess. Um, and when Frodo does, in fact, return, he is more knowledgeable, and he is more powerful as a result. And when the hobbits return, they're very able to deal with Saruman and all of the evils that have befallen the Shire, so that this would suggest that knowledge is a good thing. But at the same time, when, Frodo tr- when the battle is over and everyone goes back to society and Sam becomes the mayor and gets married and does all these exciting things, Frodo becomes sort, sort of an outcast, and has end up in his house writing all the time and becomes sort of disagreeable, and ultimately he is taken away uh, on the ship from the Grey Havens, which is a good thing, is a bad thing, but is more just because he can't be there anymore. You know, the way that he says, says it to Sam, right? I mean, he says... I set out to save the Shire, and the Shire has been saved, but not for me. Right. And that, that's often the way it is sometimes, he says, right? That in, in order to, to save something, somebody must give them up. Right. So he, he, he speaks of it explicitly in terms of self-sacrifice in that way, that he has sacrificed uh, the Shire. And, that, you know, he, and he says at the Grey Havens, you know, I've been too deeply wounded. 
he can't be healed. There's no healing for him in Middle Earth. Um, and he mentions, of course, the, the, you know, the physiological wounds that he has yes, received. Yes. You know, he's been damaged by, by knife, sting, and tooth, uh, you know, referring to Weathertop and to Shelob and to Gollum's biting right. his finger off, um, and by a long burden, right? So, I mean, and just the wearing of the ring. Um, Which is another matter entirely. How yeah. much? How much is this like corruption from Hobbit society? Is, how much is this a result of the Ring? How much is this is a result of what he knows, what he's experienced? And I mean, clearly the Ring is power. Yeah. But it is also more than power. Like Saruman seeks the Ring as that ultimate expression of his knowledge, of his power. Um, how much? How much does the ring represent power, or how much does the ring represent knowledge in addition to power? Um, well, you know, one thing I would almost say about it, thinking back to the uh, the distinction of the different kinds of knowledge. Right. There's no, there seems to be uh, no more direct way to know evil than, you know, just carry the ring around for a while and you'll know evil. Right. <laughs> when Frodo talks about his long burden, he's, he has known, he knew evil for a mm-hmm. while, and he carried it with him, and it affected him. I mean, it, 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 it worked into him, and he realizes that he is corrupted. Yes. You know, not corrupted in the sense that like, he has become a bad guy or something like that, not in a really simplistic sense. He has triumphed. He has, I mean, we see the difference right before and after the destruction of the ring. I mean, we know he's been set free from any, any enslavement to the ring, mm-hmm. but it still counts as a wound, a lingering wound that yeah. hasn't healed. And like what that wound was more than anything else, it's, I mean, I, I would say, is that exactly that kind of experiential knowledge. You know, right. he has known what evil is like from the inside. Mm-hmm. Certainly more, you know, again, coming back to the, the Hobbit uh, context, certainly more than anybody else in the Shire. Oh, yes. I mean, we already see the difference between when all four of them come back to the Shire at the end, they are just, well... In Marion Pippin's case, quantitatively greater right, than everybody right. else, but uh, you know, all four of them are qualitatively different. Their outlook has just changed um, tremendously based on their experience, based on you know, as Sam calls it, the schooling that they've received. Mm-hmm. Their experiences, they have suffered in in ways that nobody else in the Shire has, um, and so the other people in the Shire are. So it, it makes the four travelers great. I mean, it raises their stature, and now every, you know, and everyone recognizes it. Marion Pippin are not only much taller now, but they're, but they're the natural leaders. I mean, their, their stature has increased metaphorically as well, right. as, as, well as physically. Um, and the same with Sam. You know, but but, but you're, it's interesting that, you know, thinking back to the passage that you were alluding to um, about uh, Frodo not getting as much respect, he's not exactly an outcast, but he's, there's that moment where Sam is upset because he feels like Frodo's not getting enough credit. Right. You know, that, that most, of the, most of the hobbits in the Shire, um, their admiration is reserved for Merry and Pippin and for Sam himself, though Sam himself doesn't recognize that of that's course. true. But he's sort Typical of... Typical Sam fashion. Exactly. He's sort of upset that, that Merry and Pippin are getting all the press, not because he, he grudges anything to Merry and Pippin, but because, you know, he sort of realizes, well, Frodo's really the big deal of all four of them. Um, as Pippin recognizes clearly too, I mean, there's no divide between them. I mean, think of the scene when, uh, um, during the scouring of the Shire, when the the, the captain of the ruffian band um, calls Frodo little cock a hoop, uh, right. and 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 Pippin gets pissed and yeah. <laughs> draws his sword. And it's, you know, it, 
remembering the field of Cormallon and seeing this ruffian call the ring bearer little cockahoo, but he just loses it and, and draws his sword on him and, 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 and demands that he kneel in the road and ask pardon. Right. Um, you know, so clearly they recognize the stature of Frodo and everything as well, so, but, but nobody else does. Right. And so you'd think if there were some kind of like linear relationship between how much you've suffered and how much you've experienced and the increase in your stature, Frodo would be you know, would be sort of obviously huge in ways everyone appreciates, but right. he's not. I wonder, too, um, especially just because of what the ring does specifically, uh, when you wear the ring, you see into the realm of the wraiths. Right. You can see things that normally you wouldn't be able to see. I wonder almost if the ring kind of gives Frodo sort of a skewed look on things, like in the same way that Saruman is pursuing actively after evil, uh, Frodo doesn't have to. When he wears the ring, everything just looks a little evil, like wearing the opposite of rose-tinted glasses. And I'm kind of reminded uh, of the Silmarillion when uh, Hurin, who is this great hero after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, uh, is captured by Morgoth and forced to witness the horrifically tragic as it is episode of Turin Turinbar yeah, the his whole, son the, the, the phenomenally tragic destruction of his entire fa- of Hurin's entire family yeah, right. his kids and his wife and yeah. um, but he's forced to see it through Morgoth the devil's eyes right. Um, right and as a result he gets an even darker picture than what was actually going on yeah as as uh, Melian says in Doriath he who sees through Morgoth's eyes sees all things crooked yes um, so I almost wonder if the experiential knowledge that Frodo has as a result of the ring, as a result of the journey under the influence of the ring, uh, if, the, if that hasn't sort of warped him in some way. And when he does come back to the Shire, admittedly the Shire is not there for him, and maybe that was a sacrifice he made when he originally agreed to carry the ring, but since then knowledge has become something tricky, something dangerous, something something that deceives Frodo, something right. that he has gotten the evil side of things. Whereas, whereas when Sam is in Mordor and he looks out and he sees the star of Arendil and he believes that yeah. this is just, this is just, this night is not actually here. The light is still out there. Yes. It is all just skewed. We are all just convinced that it's more evil than it is. Frodo sees the evil only because of his interaction with the ring. There's no question in my mind that that's true of Frodo while he's carrying the ring. Yes. Um, and we can see that. I mean, that's very clear. I mean, that passage that you point to is a wonderful one where Sam, uh, you know, has that insight, that little flash of insight where he sees the shadow is but a small and passing thing. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of my favorite moments. And Frodo's having the opposite. I mean, we see Frodo get more and more despairing. Hope is what he loses because he's losing that perspective. He's beginning to see all things crooked and he yes. doesn't, um, you know, and he doesn't even remember good things and he can't remember pleasure and he doesn't, uh, you know, as, you know, famously at the end on Mount Doom, the scene that they did a lot with in the film um, about him not being able to remember the Shire anymore. Right. He, just, he just can't even call up those memories of the Shire um, um, though, of course, Sam can, yes, <laughs> you know, as yes. Sam without that perspective. And it's really, if it weren't for Sam's sort of pure, I was going to say innocent, but that's not quite the right word. I mean, I almost want to, I mean, it's sort of a dodgy metaphor. I almost want to say his, like, his virginal perspective. I mean, he's not been corrupted right. by, uh, by, by that kind of despair, by that kind of evil. Uh, he's, his, um, 
his perspective is what enables him to hope and him to continue moving them forward um, where Frodo wouldn't have made it without him. But, but here's a counter argument against that, which would be there's at least one clear example of the change that Frodo's experience has made actually increasing his knowledge of things in a way which is accurate, which is not skewed. Right, which is not a good thing. Right, and I'm thinking specifically about his conversation with Galadriel at the mirror, okay. um, where not only is his physical perception increased, that is, he can see the ring on her finger, right. and Sam standing right there also can't. You know, she... Uh, she turns to, you know, Galadriel turns to Sam and says, did you see my ring? And he's like, no, I saw a star shine through your finger. And I don't, I'm like, didn't that strike you as odd? But anyway, right, whatever. Right. <laughs> I, you know, he says he didn't see the ring. Um, whereas uh, only somebody, you know, Frodo did see the ring. And similarly, she goes further than that. Not only was his visual sight in some sense altered, but his psychological insight was also, you know, she says that, you know, he saw... Uh, he saw to the depths of her own heart and her own desire more keenly than many who are accounted wise, she right. says. Um, you know, I mean, I, I almost get the sense that what Galadriel is saying to Frodo there um, is nobody else on the White Council ever actually figured out that I actually want the ring. You know, right. I, I, you know I bet, uh, you know, maybe even Elrond and Gandalf would be kind of surprised uh, if they heard me talking the way I was right, just talking right. to you because I've been trying to keep it under wraps that, like, deep down I really want the ring for myself because that makes me sound kind of sketchy and everything. But, but you know, Frodo uncovers it. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, so there he has insight, mm-hmm. you know, genuine, true insight that he wouldn't have had, presumably, and that Sam doesn't have, not having the same, right. you know, advantages. But at the same time, it is a knowledge into something foul. Yeah. Um, Galadriel, what he sees in Galadriel is the evil lurking there. Right. The lust for power, the lust for the ring. Yeah. Um, so the ring uncovers, you could argue that the ring uncovers this in her. Right. That the ring draws it out, and that's why he sees her this way. Right. Um, Presumably, if there was a great, like a great wisdom there, sort of with Faramir, where he doesn't want the ring, would leave it at the roadside if right. he saw it. Right. Um, right. We don't get a revelation there. Uh, if the ring suddenly revealed to Frodo that Faramir had no- had nothing, had nothing of what Galadriel had, where she had that lust buried deep within her, the ring doesn't pull out Faramir's purity in comparison. Right. Um, so. Although in this case the ring isn't doing anything skewed, the ring is still harping on evil points before yeah. it is harping on good ones. No, I mean, I think that that's a really good point. I mean, you know, maybe the reason that Gandalf and Elrond didn't pick up on this is because they don't, they don't share that. They don't have the kind of insight into right. the desire for the ring. I mean, Gandalf recognizes it, you know, the desire for the ring. I mean, that's why he yes. says, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't tempt me. Uh, to get the ring, I mean, so he experiences some degree of temptation, mm-hmm. um, though clearly not so much as 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 Galadriel. Um, uh, but yeah, th- there is that sense that you know they they don't really understand right. about the desire for the the ring the way that Frodo now certainly does understand, even though he himself hasn't fallen into it as much as he's gonna later on. That right. that, that seems to be one of the things that gives him insight. Um, and I, mean, I think that that's that that's a fair point. The other passage that I was thinking of, and this is post ring destruction okay. um, is in Frodo's conversation with Saruman in Bag End right. at the end um, when Saruman you know makes his taunting speech about how you know I've screwed up the Shire so bad that not even your children will like see it the way it was and you know that makes me happy that I 
right, up your place. Corruption things. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so they all say, kill him. And, um, and he says, you know, and Frodo says, no, let him go. And then Saruman tries to stab him. And he says, no, even now let him go. He was great once and we shouldn't raise our hand against him. Right. And, um, uh, and Saruman's response is, you know, he looks at him and says, you've grown halfling. You yes. know, I mean, that Frodo understands uh, more. I mean, he, he, he is wiser than, than the other people. I mean, even than Sam, who was like, you know, number one to like, tackle Saruman and right. uh, you know like the like the you know the, the hobbit secret service that leaps out and like, you know <laughs> takes out Saruman there but um but it's not just a question of like you know I oh you know I am wiser and you know know best how to handle the situation but that he he perceives more clearly Saruman's heart and Saruman's state and you know the 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 the, the pity the mercy that he yes. has comes from his experience so it's clear and I would say that the wisdom and the pity, I mean, think about the importance of pity, the emphasis that Gandalf puts on it at the beginning with Bilbo and how, you know, Bilbo's pity for Gollum and, and right. how, you know, how important it was that Bilbo's ownership of the ring began with pity. And, uh, and of course, the, the, you know, that moment recalled, in fact, quoted, right, in the two towers when, when, uh, when Frodo finally meets Gollum and, mm-hmm. and, you know, now that I see him, I do pity him, he yes. says, and sort of directly addressing, like, the flashback Gandalf who's talking in his right, head. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, so, I mean, pity is so important all along, and we see, you know, this sort of this final assertion of pity by Frodo at the end, and it's clear that it's wisdom, but it's all, I mean, he has gained insight. I mean, yes. his first response, you know, it's a pity Bilbo didn't st- stab the vile creature when he had a chance, is his perspective, you know, on Gollum way back at the beginning, and his perspective on Saruman at the end. Um, although Saruman has done so much more, I mean, uh, having pity for Gollum, at least at that point, mm-hmm. is much easier than having pity on Saruman. Certainly, yes. Gollum. And what has Gollum done to done to Frodo? You know, I mean, right. not, not not very much. Just bitten <laughs> off a finger. It's not well, a no, big I, no, no, no. I, I, well, I mean, at, at the beginning point, of the story, right? Point, right? Yes. Later on, yeah, with the, you know the treachery and the Shelob incident and right. then the finger biting. Yeah, you've got a longer rap sheet at that point. But um, but but no, I mean, it's the, the act of pity against Saruman, who's not only performed this you know, in its way the destruction or the attempted destruction of the Shire mm-hmm. is one of the most purely evil acts in the whole Yeah, evil book. for evil's sake. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the closest you, I mean, you, closest you get for, to, to evil for, for evil's right. sake. You know, uh, you know, Tolkien's buddy C.S. Lewis often argued that, like, nobody does evil for evil's sake. Well, Saruman comes pretty close. Yes. <laughs> he yes. really does. Even though, you know, you could say, oh, that's much less evil than some of the other things right. that Saruman did, even some of the other things that Saruman Just did. Just scale-wise. Right, exactly. But, yeah, it's a... In that sense, that act of pity, that act of forgiveness that that Frodo shows there at the end is is more sublime, is more is more significant. Um, and I mean, I, you think you have to chalk that up to his yes. experience, you know, to the now the new knowledge, the new insight, you know, that he has gained at the end of the book. Frodo, I mean, you know, he, he doesn't officially get the title, you know, but. I would call Frodo one of the wise at the, right. end, at, at the end of the book. I mean, you know, he's... Especially as he goes off at the yeah. Grey Havens and he is counted among them. Yeah, and um. he, and, and he, I mean, even, you know, and this, it, it's easy to overlook this, but he prophesies, you know, on the, on the key, at the, at the, you know, he prophesies that, you know, Sam's kids, you mm-hmm. know, and he, here are your kids and this is what you will name them. And of course, now Sam's definitely going to name them that, obviously. Of <laughs> and of course, it might not have been hard to guess that, you know, he was going to name one Frodo and he's going to name one, you know, Pippin and he's going to name one. But, uh, but anyway, it still, he, he 
he foresees. Yes. And uh, that kind of knowledge of the future being a totally different kind of knowledge, right. uh, that is always associated with a kind of stature, a kind of insight. I mean, that's sort of extreme levels of wisdom, like when Aragorn is a man foresighted, you know, is right. the, the phrase that's used, and he will sometimes make these proclamations of, you know, what is going to happen, you know, like, I say to you, Gandalf, if you pass the gates of Moria, beware, you know, well, yeah, 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 yeah well, it kind of came out that way. I'd do that, actually, you know, if, if, uh, if Aragorn tells you to. Um, but anyway, Frodo kind of gets to that level right. there at the end. So, of course, one of the things that that seems to suggest, therefore, is that it's clearly not just a bad thing. Yes. I mean, to go, um, to go back to your example from the Silmarillion, to go back to, to, to Hurin, mm-hmm. you know, he is corrupted, by the knowledge the, you know, right. that he has gotten when he is seen through Morgoth's eyes. And that's almost unequivocally a bad thing. I yes. mean, it's just suffering to him. And everything that happens as a result of this in the Silmarillion is unequivocally bad. Right, exactly. I mean, even the one sort of generous thing he does, which is to, you know, to give the, the Nauglamir, the, the necklace of the dwarves that he took out of Nargothrond, to Thingol and Melian. Um, that ultimately he, results in the destruction of <laughs> the entire place. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, now, he wasn't trying to do that, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the tragedy yes. comes from that. And, and we should say, there's really, there's nothing that Hurin does that tragedy doesn't come from. I mean, you could, you could point to Hurin's later, there aren't very many of Hurin's later actions after he's released uh, from his torturing imprisonment, but he does two things which lead to the downfall of, in fact, the last two remaining strongholds of good in right, the world. Right. So, uh, you know, with, with Doriath and, and, and Gondolin. So, um, so, so yeah. That, that, but again, with Frodo, but that's it's not, not the like case. that. Yeah, you don't see the same thing with Frodo. When, he, when the ring is destroyed, it's almost like he's freed, at, at least of the skewed vision. Right, um, right. And what remains, of him, what remains of his insight seems to be good. Yeah. Just from your example with Saruman and his pity there. Uh, so even though his wounds remain, that skewed vision which Hurin experienced even after Morgoth was no longer directly con- calling the shots, um, Hurin is corrupted, period, and that's the end of it. Frodo yeah. was corrupted while the ring held sway over him, but somehow he is able to break himself free of it in the aftermath. So he is separate from the hobbits, but this isn't necessarily a bad thing, and I'm sure in Frodo's mind, he doesn't mind it that much at all. Right, right. See, what that brings up is thinking about almost, now we're shifting to define another thing. We were talking about knowledge and different kinds of knowledge. Right. Um, We were talking about knowledge of evil before, and I would almost want to introduce different kinds of evil, or different senses of the word evil. Mm Evil is often used, most commonly used, uh, by Tolkien in terms of, you know, something that is wicked, something that is, you know, the opposite of good. But, right. um, but evil can also mean misfortune. You know, like, you know, great evil has fallen upon us, meaning, like, really bad stuff has happened. You know, okay. like, like a plague comes or, or, a, or a drought comes, and that is a great evil. That is to say, there's a difference between Frodo's experience of wickedness, you know, his sort of... I was going to say his brush with wickedness, but it's a little more than a brush. I mean, his yes. sort of long-standing, you know, uh, relationship for <laughs> for for a, a significant period of time uh, with evil, and his suffering—just the bad stuff that has happened to him. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, that's the emphasis at the end of the story. You know, right. on Frodo's 
wounding. His I mean, misfortunes. We, yeah, yeah. He's not... Um, Frodo in Bag End, prior to the Grey Havens, is not like... He's not like a recovering alcoholic. You know, yes. he's like, well, I, you know, I experienced a lot of evil, and I still sometimes am tempted to evil, but I'm trying to get over that. I mean, that, that's obviously right, not where, right. where he is. I mean, he's like someone recovering from illness. Okay. I mean, he is recovering from illness, and he, and he you know, still has his relapses you know, on the anniversaries of his woundings, his various woundings. Right, right. Um, so, and there again, you know, see, you know, both the physiological and the psychological effects of that. So I, where I'm going with this is that talking about how knowledge increases stature, increases wisdom, and increases insight... One of the things that seems to increase stature a lot in Tolkien in general is just suffering. You know, having been through a lot. Knowledge of evil and misfortunes. Yes. And I think, you know, almost more than anything else, I feel like that's one of the things that Sam is referring to when he talks about schooling, you know, the schooling that they've received. Mm -hmm. Looking back from, you know, that's, Sam says that, um, you know, at the Falls of Rauros before the Fellowship you know, uh, uh, breaks right before they're, you know, when they're talking about, oh, what's Frodo going to do? Is he going to go to Mordor or going to go to Minas Tirith? Um, so even up to that point, mm-hmm. you know, sure, they've, you know, they've gotten experience, you know, they've, they've, they've had experiences that they never had before, like I've never been chased by a Balrog before, so I can right. cross that off my life list, you know. <laughs> I, you know so they, they've, they've, they've gained schooling in that sense, but they also have suffered. I mean, yes. like the, the loss of Gandalf. I mean, you know, they, yes. dealing with Gandalf's apparent death schools them at least as much. Uh, you know, so just having suffered, having had something bad happen to them is as much as like, you know, gosh, I know, I, now I know much more about, you know, traveling and fighting orcs than I used to know. Right. Um, it's not just that kind of schooling. It also it, compels them to want to prevent further evil. It's what drives Frodo to take the ring into Mordor despite the horrible things that are waiting for him. Yeah, I mean, the, the development, development isn't quite the right word. I want to say digestion, but that's wholly wrong. <laughs> Coming to terms with? Yeah, the, the transition of suffering into wisdom. Okay. So that's why I want to say digestion. It's, it's not because it's a weird metaphor, but it's, yes, it's to, yes. to take suffering and you make it into, uh, into wisdom. Um, that, I think, is... We can clearly see that process in Frodo, but I think it's... The thing that I think is so compelling about the end of the of the story mm-hmm. um uh, and this by the way is what i always talk about my it's my defense which never works by the way of the ending of the movie whenever you know whenever people are doing right. the standard like the ending goes on forever they're like 14 endings like you know they should have just like you know had the you know the reunion everybody kneeling down to the hobbits at you know at the crowning of aragorn credits you right. know and, no 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 you can't end there you have to have the tragedy without the tragedy it doesn't even make it, it you'd lose it's i mean to just say you lose something is, is sort of a cheap way of yeah. saying i mean it's 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 phenomenal i mean what makes the ending of the book is the complexity of frodo's situation at the end he is a hero mm-hmm. he has accomplished great good but he has suffered because i pause before saying but he has suffered because I, you could just as well say because he has suffered yes. right i mean it's 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 all about the suffering without sadness in the ending you're missing a huge portion of what's going on there i mean yeah, the readers of the story are not going to emerge with the wisdom you can gain from the end if we don't suffer i mean you know so if there were just a totally happy ending you know to this story it would be untrue to the story right. <laughs> uh, in that way. So Frodo's 
going away is sad. I mean, he's terminally injured. Yes. But again, it's but it's not just tragic either. Yes. You know, I mean, it is it is. It is still something he's accomplished. It's yeah. still something heroic. It still is about his sacrifice. And it's his sacrifice. It's because of all this suffering that the sacrifice is as impressive as it is. Yeah. yeah. It's hard not to go back to the very beginning of the Silmarillion, to the creation story, and think about the description of the music that Iluvatar, what's the verb you'd use? Compose? Orchestrate? Uh, I mean, both. conduct? <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, both, all. I'm thinking, of course, specifically about the third, the third theme. theme. Yeah, and the description of the third theme of the music, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies, but it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. One was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The link between not only suffering and wisdom, but sorrow and beauty. Yes. Um, I mean, it's literally encoded in the fabric of creation (laughs) in that song that Iluvatar creates at the beginning. So, I mean, that's just clearly a foundation stone. Like, that's just part of what life is, what, 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 what the world is like in, in Tolkien's view. So, and you can really see that being captured in, uh, in the end. So then, you know, so coming back to the, the basic question, you know, is knowledge bad? Well, knowledge clearly, you know, can be dangerous, and that in more than one sense, right? I mean, it's uh, as we see with Saruman, head right. knowledge, scientific knowledge, the desire for knowledge can be dangerous um, in that it can lead you astray. It can lead you into evil. It can lead you to pride and the desire for dominion. But right. even experiential knowledge is dangerous because it's, it's going to hurt. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, even... And it can skew you. It can corrupt you. And it can tempt you towards taking evil into your own hands. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, it's only with experience of suffering that you can learn and become tr- truly great and to understand exactly what's going on and prepare you for the future. Yeah, I mean, Hurin and, and Frodo make a really interesting pairing in that way. That, that kind of experience, that kind of intimate experience and, and no, that kind of knowledge of evil is, is going to hurt. I mean, it's just flat out going to hurt. You can't avoid that. Um, either, like Hurin, it's going to just wreck you. Now, I mean, I don't want to... Hurin's ending is a little bit more complicated than that, but still, right. I mean, At tragedy comes of it. And we don't see Hurin reacting in the way that we see Frodo reacting. Ultimately, Hurin despairs. I mean, soon, pretty soon after he is released, Hurin just commits suicide in the most unusual way I've ever seen anyone commit suicide. He just walks off into the ocean and keeps walking until he drowns, I guess, eventually. Right. We're not even told. But, um, but, I mean, but it, it is essentially despair. I mean, he, he commits suicide. Frodo um, suffers, um, and you know his knowledge the knowledge that he gains is very painful but it's only through the painfulness of his knowledge it's only it's not only through the knowledge but through the suffering that that knowledge brought him that good comes that triumph comes that pretty much wrapped up our conversation which was good because my laptop battery was about to die many thanks to ben for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and i hope you've enjoyed this first installment of tolkien chats thanks for listening and godspeed